spoken lately. I haven't thought about flying for a long time. I haven't dreamed of that moment when I was alone above the clouds for a long time. I haven't dreamed of waking up in a room surrounded in blue and green grass more years than I could dream of memory. I haven't walked back into the past or scratched on the doors of my origins, where it all came from, since I held up that cape for the last time. Return to Kent Town 10th year anniversary edition is a revised version of Ambien's first poetry book. The book can be purchased from Amazon and it contains numerous additional material. Spoken Hi, it's Ambien from Spoken Label. Thank you today for streaming or downloading another episode of Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up on beginning of the 2016 and as of speaking has currently nearly 300 sessions. The full archive is available on Spoken Label full stop bandcamp.com although it is available for free for stream and download if you wish i am always grateful for any sort of kind of donation to enable to me to keep the running costs this podcast going and enjoy take care bye-bye spoken label hey guys and the end spoken label back in the house we're on zoom again today and we're over to sunny california today where i'm speaking to a lady of course a lady called my fast screen just froze me as well there. Pam Munter. Pam. Now, Pam got in touch with me for, um, over in relation to a book she's just bought out, which is is my, my kind of book straight away, called Finding Fame, Women of a Certain Age in Hollywood. Now, hi, Pam. Now, thanks for, thanks for agreeing to speak to us, first of all, today. I'm, I'm honoured for you to get in touch. Oh, hi, Andy. It's nice to meet you, even if on Zoom. I wish I were where you are, though, but it's wonderful. Hi. No, you don't. It's, ra- it's raining over us. <laughs> oh. Do, yeah. oh, well, it's, it's 75 here today, so maybe nice. you can come and visit me. Yeah, that, I think <laughs> I think I'll be happy to come sit, sit on the beach with you, definitely. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Pam. Now, um, what I always like to ask people, obviously, when I get talking to them, because we're going to talk about your book shortly, but okay. tell us about yourself thanks so you said that you told me off mic you're originally from the la area aren't you this yes, has I... proved in it you told me you're originally from the la area and and that's proved an influence in this book we're here to talk about today yes i was born in a suburb of los angeles actually it was i don't know maybe 30 minutes from hollywood so even though my parents weren't in the show business at all and the neighbors certainly weren't the area was full of it. I mean, there were, I went to school with famous celebrities and children of famous celebrities. It was sort of infused in the culture in which I was brought up. And my mother took me to a movie when I was five years old, which was probably her undoing because I hardly ever left. I mean, I, I, <laughs> Brilliant. I, I fell in love, you know, like a duckling imprints on the mother. I was, anytime I had a chance, I was at the movies. And then I discovered that there were books about that industry, and I started devouring those. Now, Andy, you have to remember that when I was a kid, there wasn't much mass media. You know, there was no cable, there was barely any TV. And we didn't know about these people's lives at all. I mean, all we really knew was what was printed in movie magazines, believe it or not. 
And all that information came from the five major studios, publicity departments. They controlled everything. They controlled Star's Lives. They controlled our database for all these people. And so you'd buy a movie magazine once a month and you'd see these people just so very happy all the time and loving every aspect of their lives. And you know, I would look at that as a kid and say, wow, I want to be like that. Uh, of course, that never happened. But <laughs> it made me wonder as I got older what the reality was. And uh, so I started you know, reading more biographies and autobiographies, which told me a little bit more about those people's lives. And I got caught up later writing nonfiction accounts of some of the less famous people actually in Hollywood. I became less infatuated with the movie stars and more with the lesser players, the people who are likely to be forgotten. You know, Joan Blondell and Edmund O'Brien and Ann Jeffries, Eve Arden, people like that that were kind of in the background a little bit. And they fascinated me. So I wrote a bunch of stories about them, you know, and their careers, because I thought they deserved to be remembered. Well, I had a few career detours. <laughs> I realized that you can't make a living being a movie star. You, you need to be discovered first, and that didn't happen, in spite of my best efforts, I might add. Um, and so I went back to school, and I got a PhD in clinical psychology and became a clinical psychologist for oh, a quarter of a century. And saw a lot of celebrities actually in um, therapy, which was appropriate and interesting. <laughs> they knew that I understood. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I started performing myself. So, you know, it's been an interesting life. Um, the switch to fiction uh, is a relatively recent thing. I've always been a nonfiction writer and reader. I just, I love it. And I've never, frankly, never really liked fiction. Um, didn't read it, didn't understand it, didn't value it. But then I got into a Master of Fine Arts graduate program in uh, creative writing and writing for the performing arts. And after I finished writing a, an autobiography, which of course was nonfiction, my advisor said, you know, you really need to work in another genre. I thought, oh man, am I in trouble? I, I don't, this is all I know, you know, it was nonfiction. And then I thought, you know, I have this wealth of Hollywood information in my head that I've been reading and writing about for decades now. What if I took some of that information and tweaked it a little bit, uh, turned it into fiction and wrote some short stories about some of the people I found fascinating and concocted other stories that are collections of people, actually. And I couldn't believe I got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. It was kind of like cheating, you know, because <laughs> I was really doing what I loved and knew. And, uh, so, and then out came fading fame, you know. <laughs> it was partly a feminist document, I think, in some ways, partly a response to uh, the Me Too movement and uh, partly it was uh, just a labor of love on my part. Yeah, you can certainly tell if you actually read the book. Like it is, you can see like it's sometimes when I speak to writers, 
you can see like they've gone for the, I don't like saying this word. They've gone for the motions more with the book. But yours, yeah. you can tell that it had been there with you for a long time. Mm-hmm. Was it quite a long process writing this book? Well, it, yes, it was. Uh, you know, I started out writing the first story, which was about um, Mary Pickford and Francis Marion. It's also the first story in the book. And that was for my class, for my degree, because I, as I say, I was required to do this. And I cranked that out and I was always fascinated with Mary Pickford. You know, it was one of the first movie stars ever and certainly the first female movie mogul ever. Uh, and I wanted to know more about her screenwriter also, Frances Marion. Uh, and so when I finished that, I thought, you know, there are other people that I would love to write about. And ended up, of course, doing just that. It was after the program ended, after I, they gave me my degree, kind of as I ran out the door, hoping they wouldn't notice. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, the book is um, a collection, you know, and it took about three years, I suppose, to write all those stories and plays. I suspect with it on the book is, because if you're interested in old Hollywood like that, the book have probably been in your subconscious for quite some time before that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You can tell that straight away with that because. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you could see that. Yeah. You can, you can sometimes when it's you're dealing with people like that. And because like it's looking at your website, it's, your website's really interesting. It's not just you just because just of this book. I found it interesting when I was looking at your book and um, your website, and you've done a couple of albums as well. I like when you you done like your Frank, kind of tribute to Sir Frank Sinatra with a uh-huh. torch you can't lose, yeah. and then like and also your Doris Day one as well, sentimental journey. So, mm-hmm. am I right in thinking that music's always been part of your life as much as your writing for quite some time? It, that's very astute of you. Yes, it's true. I started piano lessons as I guess all kids did at that age, at the age of six, and I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> oh, yes. But my mother was right. I mean, I came back to it years later and, you know, started writing some music. But performing music has always been uh, a part of, well, earlier it was part of my fantasy life, really. Doris Day is, you know, a major player in my childhood, uh, in my, my fantasies anyway. And so, and I still, I just, uh, as an adult here in Palm Desert, I taught myself to play the cornet and started a Dixieland band called the Bees Knees. And um, we performed around the area for I don't know, about 10 years or so. Wow. So, you know, it's never quite out of my system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you could, I'm always a believer of treating on your thoughts on this as well, is whenever you, you get really get into one creative medium, for be a better word, like mm-hmm. it, you always can seemingly step much easier into other mediums as well, because I because I'm I'm a poet really, and I've got two oh, thirds of a novel done, and oh. I'm also tra- trained pian- pianist myself. I'm doing music, so it's like it's I've moved around from one genre to another over time. Mm-hmm. It's come quite easy. And did you find that yourself over time? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I, I it's kind of compulsively creative and you may be too. I think if you are, you almost can't help yourself. Yeah. Can't, can't stop myself. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No matter what. 
And I've had stops and starts with, with both of these areas, music and performing, as well as writing. You know, life interferes, as you know, and you have to earn a living and you have to, you know, have a family and do all the things that people do. And uh, it, uh, it's kind of like a raging river, though. You know, you can dam it up for a while, but just you better stand back because it's coming at you sooner or later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, I agree. I agree with you completely on that. It does. It's, it does come naturally, like whether you like it or not sometimes. Definitely so. Now, <laughs> right. I want to ask you a bit more about this book, obviously, because we're here today talking about your new book, really. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Finding Fame. Now, what made you want to actually do it as short stories and plays? Because if people look at the book, there's 10 short stories at the beginning of the book and even conclude with a couple of plays. Yes, I know it's unorthodox. Uh, but, you know, so what? <laughs> it's good to be an orthodox, as I always say. <laughs> well, that's sort of my motto, actually. <laughs> uh, the short stories came, as I said, out of that program. I, Since I'm not a huge fan of fiction, the thought of writing a novel is just so... It's like, you know, you want to go to the moon tomorrow. I mean, it's, it's likely. And uh, short stories were enough of a surprise. I just, I just don't think that I could even contemplate a novel. The plays were also a bit of a surprise. You know, having been an actor, I've been in a number of them, but I had never written one. And um, the plays that are in the book are sort of dark comedy books, uh, plays with the same theme. You know, what happens to women of a certain age who are no longer hireable, no longer desirable by the industry and maybe not even by society? And how do they cope with that? So it was a logical thing to put these short plays with exactly the same theme as the short stories into the same book. And the reader will find a smoothness, maybe even some relief in the plays because they're intended to be funny (laughs) as well as prophetic, you know, of feminism and how people cope. Yeah, I know certainly when I was reading the book, certainly, I got the black humour in it straight away. That's why Uh it was like, did you find then... Obviously, with the book taking a couple of years to write, did you actually find that it was a, was this a relatively smooth road of the book to write, or did it change over time for you? Well, once I decided after the Mary Pickford story that I wanted to put together more short stories, I didn't know how many were in me. There wasn't a master plan or anything. I was writing all this time, I was writing nonfiction. Um, I have published numerous essays, I'm not a nonfiction memoir in nature, in literary magazines over the last 10 years or so. And so it was easy to kind of let this process of fiction flow as it wanted to. You know, I would see something in the paper, for instance, about uh, Ethel Barrymore, who was, a, in my book, she's an aging uh, Broadway star, really, who was relegated to a secondary character role in a Frank Sinatra movie and not really happy about it. But, you know, I, I didn't think about Ethel Barrymore until I read a story about her just inadvertently. Uh, her history is phenomenal. I mean, she, she has a New York <clears throat> theater named after her, for God's sakes. I mean, it, you know, that says a lot. And I knew I had to write about her. How did she go from having a theater named after her and being a star on Broadway for, well, generations of Barrymores to being sort of a character actor in a Frank Sinatra musical? How did that feel? 
So as these things occurred to me, I would sit down and uh, after incubating, I'm a big incubator. You, you might be too, as a creative person, you know, things happen in your head before they happen on the page. Yeah, frequently. <laughs> Absolutely. And so I sat down and, you know, started to write it. And I, I don't have a plan necessarily. I have less of a plan with plays because I let the characters tell me where they're going. With the short stories, you know, I sort of knew the reality of, for instance, of Ethel Barrymore and some of the other people I mentioned in the book. But I didn't want to stick with that. I wanted to know the, the internal part of their experience. And I have to say, as a former shrink, uh, I had some insight and some skills in getting inside people's heads. And I took advantage of that. Yeah, I can see that from reading your profile before about you being obviously, like you said, you're in a formal shrink. And it shows with the detail that's gone into your stories, definitely with it. And like it was like people read this book, you'll see it where you can tell like it's, you're actually, you know your characters that you're writing about. Mm-hmm. And it, some of it is really quite ghostly close to the truth is some of the real life characters crop into the book, I suspect as well. Well, of course, I have no idea about their real life internal life. <laughs> because I, while I have met some of these people, I actually did, um, and knew one of them, actually. I, you know, I had to make that part up because I had no idea. I mean, I knew, for instance, that Doris Day had been ripped off by her husband of her fortune. And that when he died, he left her in debt to the IRS. He had signed a contract in her name to do a TV series she knew nothing about. I knew that. I knew she had a son because I had met her son a couple of times. I actually had met her a couple of times. Um, so how did she process that? She was married to this man almost 20 years. And all that time, he was ripping her off. You know, how does a woman, particularly of her stature, deal with that kind of information? So yeah. you know, a story had to come out of that. No, yeah, that's the story in itself immediately. So I can understand you completely with that one. So now I've just been, re- I was reading up before about who was some of your favorite authors. And you've done that. I could see some of these where I was impacted on your own work. So mm-hmm. I don't want to go into all of it because you've listed elsewhere quite a, quite a few people. But mm-hmm. I want the one I'm curious about is Robert Caru. Who's a who's a big massive researcher, and I'd heard the name certainly before yeah. myself. Awesome. Now, yeah, yeah. I think I've read one of his books actually as well. Definitely, the name rings about certainly. Now, with that there, then did he prove a massive impact in the way you research your, your, your books and stuff like that, and how you look into how you're going to structure it? Well, he writes, uh, of course, nonfiction, uh, as you know. He's his series on uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. We're still waiting for the last part of that. I hope he stays alive long enough to finish it. <laughs> um, and certainly, I mean, once a researcher, always a researcher. You know, some of my wonderful memories were spent in the Academy of uh, Motion Picture Arts and Sciences library, you know, where all the original information is there. I mean, I looked at Christmas cards that were sent to movie stars and that they sent out to their friends. And I mean, you can touch this stuff, you know, it's just amazing. And I'm sure Carl had that same excitement, you know, when he was at the LBJ library and the ranch in doing the research. With the fiction, um, there really wasn't a lot of uh, research required. It was all in my brain. <laughs> Scary though that may sound. <laughs> so I, knew, I knew these stories. I will say though, 
there was there's a story uh, called The Last Fan, which is about uh, Joan Davis and Eddie Cantor, both of whom were uh, famous in their day. They were big vaudeville stars. They made movies. They had uh, uh, television shows. They were very well known at the time. Uh, probably going to be forgotten, I'm sorry to say, but uh, it, I knew about both of them because I'd read so much about them. But accidentally, as I was writing the story, making it up, of course, uh, I read that they both had houses just about five miles from where I live. And I thought, oh my, oh my, well, I had to go and look. <laughs> you know, how could as you, you do? Yeah, as you do, definitely. So. <laughs> and I didn't know they were within a mile of each other. I mean, my story has to do with an affair that they might or may not have had, who knows. And I, there was Eddie Cantor's house has been, of course, completely, they're long dead. So, you know, these houses are very old. They don't look old, nothing looks old here. <laughs> uh, and the, the Joan Davis house was currently being remodeled. And so the doors and windows were all open and there were workmen everywhere. The, I guess the residents weren't there. And I was so tempted to just kind of walk in, you know, by accident and say, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I was meeting blah, blah, blah here, and I could see there, you know, just to get a look at the house, because the story is, takes place in that house. But I didn't. I thought, you know, this is called fiction, Pam. You know, use your imagination. You don't need to do research to write a short story. So I had to kind of undo my natural inclinations to stay in the world of fiction. Yeah, yeah, of course. You just all you have to do is just get a lot of it is just feel, I think, sometimes with that sort of stuff. Yeah. So and if okay. you've got the feel right for it, you can just go with the, you can just go with it then basically, can't you? Straight well, away with that. So have you done many readings on this supporting this book yet since it came out? Have I done yes, I have. Um, you know, Zoom, of course, is king now. I mean, we have uh, we're just getting over this whole COVID craziness, so there hasn't been a lot of in-person stuff. But uh, I've done you know, lots of Zooms and getting reviews is wonderful. They, they seem to like the book, which is great. I appreciate that. But you know, I, having been an actor and a singer, I think those days of seeking acclamation are gone for me. I, I've kind of passed by the need for that. And so what I want now is just for people to read the book and get the messages that are in there. And if they do that, I'm a happy camper. You know, that's really all I want at this point. I think when you look back what you've done in your career, basically, like it's you're certainly looking at that where you need. You, it's not the case that when you're younger, sometimes you got that need, don't you, to people's review you, praise you. But you're yeah. at the stage in life now. You just want people to read the book. Basically, I'm like yeah. that with a lot of my work. It means it means the world to me. People say they like my work or praise mm -hmm. it even. But I'm not as you're not as obsessed with it, I don't think, are you? So No, you know, the most important person I need to please is myself at this point. And and I'm a I must have been a tough critic. So, you know, if I can let it go out the door, it's you know, that's where it is. I just have to live with that. Yeah, you know, I agree with you completely with that one. So no, it's perfectly true. So I was I was reading before as well about a different topic, you know, that you used, you've done a lot of cabaret shows as well. Can you tell us a bit about the experience of that then? What was cab doing cabaret like for you when you were younger? Oh, yeah, yes. Uh, that was kind of an accident. I wasn't performing at the time, and I had closed up my private practice. 
um, due to managed care, it was just a tangled web of control from other people, which I don't deal very well with. So I closed up the practice and here I am with time in my hands and thought, you know, maybe now's the time to jump into show business. You know, I've always wanted to do it. I have the time, I have some resources to bring to it. So I signed up, uh, I signed with an agent and I did some independent films. I was living in Portland, Oregon at the time. I did some movies, I did a TV show. I hosted a TV show and lots of commercials, you know, actors do commercials. And then I uh, happened to see a woman perform a cabaret act. I didn't even know what that was. I'd never seen anything like it. And as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, I can do that. I wanna know how to do that. And so I went back and started taking singing lessons. And you know, with cabaret, it's an hour of you and maybe a musician. I have always had a jazz trio because I love working with jazz trios. And you write the show. I mean, you talk to the audience about what's going on. You select the music. It's, uh, it's like writing a Broadway show where one person. And I love that. I mean, that, that used everything of me. You know, the musical inclination, the writing, the performing. I just, I love doing it. But it's very difficult to sustain. Uh, everything that matters is in New York City. And uh, I lived on the other coast. So in order to perform in New York, which I did often, I had to leave everything, you know, the relationships, um, my house, my friends, and get on a plane and fly across the country to perform for, you know, two or three months at a time, and all over the country too, I might add. Uh, and it's, it's, it's hard. Um, you perform sometimes every night, but not usually. It's usually like a weekend or four weekends in a row or something like that. And you have the whole week performing. I don't know if you've done any of that in all your uh, readings yeah. or anything. I've done lots, I've yeah. done lots. Not, not as frequent as like what you have there, but yeah, certainly I agree. <laughs> you know, you got to get yourself up for it. I mean, it's a very major ramping up of the central nervous system to, to do anything like that. And, you know, then it's over and you ramp it down again. And it was, a, for me, the emotional roller coaster was not my style. I'm a very even-tempered, even-mannered person. And while I loved doing it, while I was doing it, I decided at some point, eh, you know, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> You're all fired and I'm leaving. <laughs> so, it's time to move on to the next stage of your life, really, I suppose, isn't it, you say so? Yeah. Exactly. Now, the last thing I want to touch on today as well is obviously before we come on to obviously where people can get hold of or get hold of your material and stuff is I did notice that you had your first play, Life Without, was nominated by the Desert Theatre League for Best Original Writing. Oh, that was so exciting. Very exciting. My first play. I mean, come on, you yeah. people. Don't you Brilliant. know I don't know what I'm doing? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Tell us a little bit about that then, Pam, because I'm very interested to learn a bit more about that, to, to be honest with you as well. Uh, Life Without is a story of a, a lesbian couple who have been together for a very long time. And one of them wanted very much to be a performer. I put it, it takes place in Los Angeles, but the performer tried to make a go of it in New York City and really couldn't quite pull it off. And so her partner had to support them while she was doing this. She was a vet, the partner was a vet. 
And so the ex-performer became a teacher and she was teaching at a college in Los Angeles. And everything was okay. I mean, there were issues between them, which are detailed in the play, but then somebody moves in to the condo down the hall who is a cabaret performer. And it just galls her because he's terrible. And she knows he, she was so much better than he was and he's insufferably egotistical. By the way, the man who played that part in the play won an award <laughs> for playing it. <laughs> Brilliant. Wonderfully hammy part. You know, he sings and he carries on and he brags about himself and name drops and it's a fabulous part for somebody. And it forces the, the ex-performer to think about, maybe I can get back into it. You know, the guy buys a club and invites her to sing there, which creates havoc in the relationship between the two women because, you know, the partner has put up with this for so long and was hoping it was over because there's a tenure issue. And once she gets tenure, you know, they're secure for life. And it's, uh, it, it doesn't sound funny, but it is. <laughs> Black, uh, black humor, <laughs> as you say, don't you? <laughs> yes. And so in the end, uh, she walks away from it. Uh, again, this, she's too old. She knows she's too old. She knows the costs that performing has had on her relationship with her partner. And she lets the ham go on and kind of self-destruct. <laughs> That's what he's going to do. And resumes her more healthy life. So it was a, sort of a happy ending. Um, she has to write a play for her tenure and he ends up starring in it, which is perfect. Brilliant. <laughs> He'd star in a, you know, a pickle ad. I mean, he was just so full of himself. Brilliant. Okie dokie. Anyway, well, that's covered all my questions today, Pam. So okay. if people want to find out more about you, where, mm -hmm. are, the best, where are the best going? Probably my website, which is uh, www.pammunter.com. Yeah, and uh, you can buy the book also online there, which is available, by the way, at amazon.com, as is everything in life, it would seem. Oh, yeah, completely Amazon. Amazon, Amazon. Amazon is the world, as I say nowadays. Too. <laughs> it is, it is, like it or not, that's how it is. Definitely. Not. Now, it's been a fascinating chat today, Pam, so thank you for this. Now, you can, I know you're going to do something read as an extract for us in the second half. So we'll let you take a quick break, get composed, and cool. we'll be back in a minute or two, guys and girls. All right. Thank you. See you all in a minute. Spoken, mate. Hi, guys. Straight off to Pam. She's going to do an extract from her new book. Over to you, Pam. Thank you, Andy. The, this is from the foreword in Fading Fame. The Hollywood of the 1950s was a mysterious, magical place. It was long before VCRs, digital replays, the National Enquirer, or the 24-hour news cycle. The only way one could watch a movie was in the theater. And all we knew about movie stars came from the studios that controlled the information flow. Those all-powerful monoliths manufactured and synthesized stories and fed them to movie magazines, transforming mere fiction into mythology. The only way we knew when someone married or divorced was when legal documents became public. We didn't know who was chemically dependent, a spousal abuser, or a child molester. Still, there was one deviant behavior we all assumed was going on. The casting couch was a persistent legend all its own. 
The way to the top for actresses was through the back offices of power brokers, Daryl F. Zanuck, Louis B. Mayer, David O. Selznick, Harry Cohn, and even the elderly Adolf Zucker. We didn't think it particularly shocking because women were already about as far from a protected legal class as possible. We couldn't own property in our own name, adopt a child without a man, be a party to a contract without a man's signature. Women's subservient nature was considered inherent in the species, a form of institutional discrimination. It was widely assumed that women comprised a secondary class whose main purpose was to serve the needs of man. We saw it in our own homes and watched it powerfully modeled on the screen. Even with the fleeting promise of a feminist theme, think, you know, Catherine Hepburn or Rosalind Russell, the closing scene inevitably featured the woman caving to consensual male superiority. The short stories in this collection demonstrate the costs of that institutional social oppression. As with all historical fiction, some of the people described here lived at one time, but the stories are fabricated via the imagination. The Hollywood in the book's title serves as a metaphor for show business and is not restricted to the geography of Southern California. Misogyny and the struggle to maintain a sense of integrity in the performing arts are not unique to time and place. Women were welcomed into show business with the subtext clear and inevitable. If you were young, beautiful, nubile and willing, you stood a chance at fame. Talent didn't hurt, but it wasn't required the eventual deal breaker was the aging process. As women grew older, they became less desirable as sex objects on and off the screen and were easily replaced by eager, younger, compliant models. What happens to women whose fame fades? For many, the impassioned striving for stardom defined their very existence. The women in these stories did achieve a measure of it and all paid a price some more than the rest. The romanticized fiction that fame is a solution to everything is evident any place there's a stage or someone desperate to perform there. Some of the stories may use the names of real life people, but rest assured it's merely historical fiction. The women in this collection are past their prime trying to find their way in a world that no longer finds them valuable. When they were, they are no longer. Who they were, were no, they are no longer. Each one struggles within her own limitations, seeking to rebalance and create life anew, to find an option that could be described as plan B. It's tempting to characterize these women as victims. In reality, they are strong, talented women doing the best they can in a toxic and often demeaning environment. We can't help but admire them. They are the fallout, the flotsam and jetsam of a time when sexism was waved as proudly as a flag. The corrosive truth is that misogyny is not unique to Hollywood. Women of a certain age will all face these dilemmas. These are our sisters. From the preface, the foreword. Fantastic. Cheers, Pam. I think that's you made a really good choice reading it out there because that pretty well sets the scene for what's coming with your book. I think completely. So oh, good. Yeah. I've, I said to everybody, 
I reckon it's certainly a recommendation getting hold of this book because I really, really enjoyed it. So, like I said, for that one, but thank you again for this today, Pam. It's been a true pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed this. Thank you so much, Andy. I appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you again, Pam. Now, hang around. I do need to speak to you off the microphone. So, uh, thank you again. And as Don Callis says over at Impact Wrestling, stay safe and stay over. And we'll see you all soon. Take care. Spoken, mate.